Welcome everyone to the Atomic Cinema Experiment. I am Peter, and joining me as always is Tara. Greetings, citizens. This is a science fiction movie podcast where we get together, we've watched the movie, and we talk about it. It's really quite that simple. And this is actually test subject number 100. That's right, this is the 100th movie that we are doing on the main show. So therefore, we we always knew what this was going to be. We, I, I think I said in like episode 2 what episode 100 should be. And here we are. I, I stick to my word. Uh, it also happens to be Tara's favourite movie, which is why... Not to spoil her opinion. <laughs> it, feels, it feels like my usual format of saying, Hey Tara, what did you think of the movie? Uh, but this is 2001 A Space Odyssey, directed by Stanley Kubrick from 1968. Uh, we will start spoiler free for a little bit uh before we go into it i feel like a lot of this one will be more uh interpretation and analysis than perhaps describing the plot because there's not actually that much plot in this when you really when you, if you actually try to describe the sequence of events you can do it in a few sentences and then it's done mm-hmm. uh because the movie takes its time with some really simple details which we'll talk about but yeah every time you you like pause the film to see where you at like where you're at in the time it's always a surprise that so much time has passed i think yeah i in fact one of the key moments i checked just for curiosity's sake was the very first line of dialogue i was curious how far i was in to the movie uh it's over 25 minutes before mm-hmm. the first line of dialogue that is how long it takes for a word to be uttered in this movie so this, this is an interesting one because obviously it's a big classic. It has a lot of critical acclaim. Stanley Kubrick's one of the most acclaimed directors of all time. All these things. But this is this is one where I have to say the first time I watched this, I was maybe 11 years old and I did not get it. I don't think I enjoyed that viewing at all. I didn't understand anything. I thought it was really weird and boring. And it wasn't until I came back and watched it again, maybe around the age of 18 or 19, that... My, my 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 taste in cinema had evolved a little bit and I'd d- dare I say I was ready to ascend to a new <laughs> level of film watching. Uh and two thousand <laughs> suddenly became more special and I've seen it many times since then. Uh basically every home video format, you know, I had it on D V D, got it on Blu ray. Uh all of today I watched it on four K. Uh but and it always seems to kind of be one of those movies that i put in is one of the first things in the new format to like okay i know how this is supposed to look it's always stunning it's shot in i think it's like 60 millimeter 65 millimeter film uh looks glorious we'll get into what the movie actually is but it's tara's favorite movie and i've been hogging the mic (laughs) because i can't ask the question this time because we already know it's your favorite movie i I don't know how to lead into this so i'll just say here's the floor feel free to gush (laughs) Yeah, my background with the film is, uh, I, I, it's it's like one of my earliest memories. Um, my family moved around, not a whole lot, but at significant ages we've moved. And uh, one of my earliest memories is going to a, like, a, not a, it's like a garage sale and someone had a bunch of books. And I remember using my own 10 cents to buy the 2001 book. Because I had some, I already had some association with the film, probably through my father. Um, I still have the book. It's beat up. (laughs) It's missing the jacket. (laughs) But it's probably the oldest thing I actually own. Like, the thing that I've owned the longest. 
Um, so like even when I was young, I, I knew the movie was special. I think the, the moment I watched the film where it really spoke to me and stuck with me, I think I also was 11. And, uh, I remember watching it and just being so blown away with the imagery of the film. And, um, I used to like draw all the time. I was a big drawer. <laughs> my hobbies I, were staying in my room. So whatever hobbies <laughs> were a result of just being in isolation, that was it. Um, so I, and I went on a trip with my friend and her family and like the whole trip, I just drew pictures from this film. So I have a lot of, uh, I don't know, I have a lot of nostalgia for the film. Like even early on, like when I watched it and the parts that I didn't understand, I just couldn't wait to get older so that I could understand them. <laughs> and now that I'm here, like there's still parts of the film that I think are, you're not really able to explain. It's not something that, it's not a movie that holds your hand. It's a movie where it's like, what do you get from it? It's more like a musical piece. Yeah. All I took from that was you rubbing it in my face that you were a more sophisticated 11-year-old than me. That's all I got from that. <laughs> well, you would take it very personally. <laughs> What's that supposed <laughs> to mean? What, 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 what are you getting at? <laughs> I'm bad you. How dare you think you've got me figured out? Uh, this is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I the, the movie is beautiful. Uh, Stanley Kubrick films always have a very stark, distinct visual look. He he knows what he's doing with the camera, and sometimes it feels so simple and so symmetrical. It almost mm -hmm. I feel like you watch a Stanley Kubrick movie and you think, oh, how hard could it be to do this? Because sometimes all it is is you know there's a shot early on in this movie where it's like a boardroom style scene, and someone's up at the podium. And the camera's just at the back of the sort of the, the U-shape of the tables, right? It's just traditional kind of boardroom slash classroom kind of uh, setup. Not, not so mm -hmm. much a school classroom. I'm thinking more of like a university classroom. Typically, you'd get like a U-shape kind of layout. But, and the camera's just at the back of the U-shape, very in the middle, symmetrical looking up. You think, okay, they've just put it in, the, he's just put it in the middle, right? Surely that's the, the instinct that anyone would have is just, oh, just put it in the middle. It's, it's easy. There's almost no thought went into it. Uh, but somehow, because uh, partly because a lot of other things go into this, like lighting, like direction of the actors, like set design, so many things, right? Because that's the other thing. Everything in this has been meticulously designed. Even the chairs in this scene have got this weird kind of futuristic kind of look to them. But retro-futuristic, <laughs> because obviously it was made in 1968. Yeah, they look like, um, like modernistic in the 60s. But you, you watch some of, his, some of his shots, some of his scenes, and you, and you think... Oh, anyone could go, any film student could go and recreate something that feels comparable to this. And it's a crushing lesson in how untrue that is and how <laughs> difficult it is to actually make the simplest in... One of the words I use a lot when I'm talking about good filmmaking is confident. There's a, there's a mm -hmm. confidence to good filmmaking, particularly in how a scene is blocked and how it's, how it's uh, staged and how the cinematography captures the scene. Because one of the one of the ways that you learn how to shoot things, if you're shooting like a dramatic scene from a movie, TV, whatever, is that you kind of learn that you have different types of shot. You have your master shot, which is just capturing the whole thing in one big wide shot. But then you'll go in and you'll do like your, your close-ups, your different actors, you'll do your medium close-ups, 
you'll have maybe a two shot as maybe a sort of closer in of two actors or a three shot with three actors and you do all of these for the scene let's say there's a few people in it so that when you get into the editing room you have a lot of choice because you'll find that certain things don't work that you, you, you you'll try and cut from that shot to that shot you go ah oh, it doesn't really work you kind of have to go back to the wide it doesn't really flow very well and you counter all these problems that don't quite work hmm. when i watch a stanley kubrick movie this may not be true but in the case of that u-shape you know that, that boardroom scene it's all basically in one shot or maybe two or three shots i think it's up to the guy in the podium like maybe for extended time in the middle but there's not a lot of leeway there's not a lot of you know i, I imagine much like i think hitchcock was kind of like this with some movies as well where he'd basically already edited it in his head and he would just <laughs> go in and do it and again you think oh can't anyone do that because i mean when, when i was thinking of what i was going to shoot and shoot in movies i i would sort of try and edit it in my head before i do it but then once you start actually shooting and then once you start trying to edit you realize oh no there's so many little things you don't account for that then go wrong and then you have to try and fix it and that's right. why you're you're taught to get so much coverage of everything so that you've got all this all the all the different puzzle pieces that you can make the finished scene out of right and- i did listen to the uh, the audio commentary uh, which was with the two actors that are we see later on in the film um mm-hmm. on the discovery and um they did explain that the majority of shooting the film was just Kubrick setting up lighting and like <laughs> like most of the time it was they had to wait like hours for the lighting to be just perfect and then they would go in and do their scene and then as far as directing the actors go there really wasn't any direction I think he just sort of trusted that he had hired the right people to know how to how to play the role and he was just I mean he has a background in photography so for him, it was just about getting the shot right, not about what the I think, actors were doing. I mean, that's a little strange for a director because obviously directing the actors is equally a big part of the job. But but also, I, this I, film has like hardly any dialogue. the The movie is like over half of the movie has no dialogue in it. Well, so. yeah, but even more so. That to me, that says you have to direct the actors even more because they have to do so much with their body language. They have to do so much with their actions. But the, the point I was trying to make though is that. I think one of the unsung kind of elements that, and maybe, you know, if you've listened to this podcast and maybe you're just a casual movie watcher who's what likes hearing people talk about it, you don't really know some of the, you know, the lingo, you don't know maybe some of the ins and outs. Like, when we talk about cinematography, obviously your immediate thought goes to framing, it goes to camera movement and where the camera's pointing. But I don't think most people who, again, aren't necessarily as into filmmaking or as photography is that, cinematography is as much about the lighting as it is about anything else the cinematographer is also in charge of what the lights are doing and that's why setting up the lights are so important in fact it's one of the big things that separates what a professional looking movie looks like versus some little student film is that trying to light a scene to look good on camera is really tough and mm-hmm. it may seem obvious you may think oh someone's just sitting in a, a table and there's a lamp and oh yeah this is easy peasy but if you go and try and do it yourself, you'll, you'll, look, you'll, you'll look back at the footage later and go, this looks like shit. Why does this not look like, <laughs> you know, X movie, Y movie? And again, like, so that meticulous level of, like, Kubrick setting up lighting for hours on end for each individual scene, that gives me, like, dark flashbacks to, like, uh, you know, shooting, shooting movies and, like, being obsessed with the lighting, but having no time to really do it. So you have to just sort of quickly go, well, I guess that'll do we have no time to do anything else <laughs> there's a lot of behind the scenes things that you know you're, you're right in that 
Kubrick just comes off as confident, like he has the movie in his head already. But there's a lot of things you find out where, you know, a lot of the the lines are improvised um, the, between the two leads, especially in like um, the scene in the pod where they're talking to each other is like there was there were, there was dialogue that was written for that scene, obviously, but Cooper didn't like it. So he said, why don't you guys just uh, just try to like make your own lines for it? That's a that's <laughs> it's like a weird comparison, but that's very wrestling. Because uh, typically in wrestling, because obviously they're telling stories, uh, they, what they'll do is they'll have bullet points of like, okay, here's, here's the key, here's the story beats we have to sort of mm-hmm. get across in this promo. Yeah, or but, like curb your enthusiasm is the same way. Yeah, but we're not actually going to script all the lines. You just you know, say what's natural, say what feels right, but get just make sure you get these two or three well, points I think, across. Yeah, I think the the problem with that scene that he had was that the dialogue he had written was just too much. There was too much of it. And he wanted things to be a little bit more concise and more realistic. So he just had the actors like improvise to each other. And he would have somebody like write up the lines that they were saying. And each time he would have them read those and improvise off of the previous one until they got something that they liked. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, I think, you know, I talk about, I talk about being confident. I mean, I fully acknowledge that every director who comes across as confident there are those things that they didn't plan mm-hmm. for. There, there are improvisations. There are, it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's kind of like, I, I guess I'll keep it to like a musical performance, right? Is that you go to see a, a, a band or a, an artist who, right? And the professional and you'll go and see a set and it'll be almost perfect. And it'll be, you know, a stunning display of all this music and all that. What you don't see is the hundreds of rehearsals where the first 50 sounded terrible, where all these things didn't quite work. But you go mm-hmm. and see it and you can't imagine them being bad at it. You can't imagine. And a movie's kind of like the same way. You don't let anyone see it till it's it's ready to be seen. And Yeah. Yeah, I, it's just... It, I don't know. You, th- you think of, like, great directors and you think that this is their, their baby and it's hard, like, to let other people influence your baby. But it's... Uh, you know, he really did get a lot of input from his actors for this film in particular. Even uh, there's a scene, I'm not going to exactly describe it, but there's a scene at the end where he legitimately didn't know how he was going to do it and just talked to one of the actors like and got ideas off of, I, I think, a few of them. Like there was just a group meeting, like, I got to shoot this and <laughs> I'm trying to portray this, but I don't really know yeah. how. And there, how, how are we going to do this? And it was like a team effort to come up with how they would like uh, portray like the passage of time. And this is all very, you know, varies from person to person. You know, obviously other directors, like they do have, you know, everything sort of mapped out in their head. And that's not wrong either. I mean, obviously filmmaking is a collaborative effort, but Mm -hmm. ultimately if a director has kind of like, okay, this is what I want you to do as an actor and this is how I'm going to shoot it. And I've got all this stuff. And, by all, by all means, like I, th- I think, a lot of directors will sort of give a give the actor a take for them, right? They'll say, "Okay, do it my way. I'll give you a take to do it your way." And sometimes, sometimes, and you know, when they get to the editing process, they'll look at the actor's version and go, "You know what? In some cases, I'll actually pick their version because maybe the actor actually had the better, you know, the right idea for the moment in a way that I couldn't have because I was too, I was too yeah, busy." Yeah, but now that you're stepped away from it, yeah. you can see, uh, like, yeah. okay. They had a point. <laughs> yes. That said, though, sometimes you take it too far. I don't know if you've ever seen the making of stuff for Blade Runner where Ridley Scott got, like, 25 takes of, like, a, a, a plate of soup being put onto the counter 
And it's just a close-up of Sue. I was like, like, these are all the exact same, Ridley. Why, why, why are you taking 50 takes? What, what are you doing? You're wasting time. Uh, so, no, that, that was an interesting uh, topic to jump into immediately, uh, Kubrick's craft. But um, I, 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 Well, I, I mean, like, he's... Uh, I, I do think this film's a masterpiece. Well, so I, I why think, not? Uh, to go back to my, me using the, the phrase confident, I think the other way I'd describe it is when I'm watching most movies and TV, and it's not to say that I'm, I'm t- when I'm talking about professional movies and TV that I think they're substandard that I could do better, but there is a sort of typical standard of the way you shoot something where I can just almost see the, you know, the, the marionette wires, right? I know how they're doing it, and I can see all the all the ways that they've, they've, they're, they're covering themselves. I can see how they've maybe fixed mistakes if there was a mistake. I can see all the all the little safety nets, I suppose. But when I'm watching a Kubrick movie, and it's the same way when I'm watching, you know, other directors, like, uh, I can't think of another example, but when I'm watching a Kubrick movie, I find, like, I don't see the safety nets. It feels, <laughs> it feels like a madman in a weird way had, had this, just this way of doing it. And clearly that's not the case, but he's so good at what he does that ultimately ends up feeling like that. It feels like there is no safety nets. Uh, I was going to use David Lynch as a comparison, but David Lynch does have safety nets because he's so weird and wacky that he can literally do anything and it'll come across as intentional. <laughs> I see. Because, <laughs> I mean, in the New York Twin Peaks season, ca- actors who had passed away that he couldn't bring back, he literally just turned... David David Bowie's character from Fire Rock With Me is just a teapot in the new season. And it's like, yeah, it's David Lynch. You can get away with turning the character into a teapot. It's fine. I still have no idea what this Twin Peaks is about. <laughs> I've watched the whole thing, and even I only have a vague idea, so I mean, that right. sounds about right. <laughs> That's part of the fun. But I, I do think David Lynch is an interesting comparison, because I, I think the ambiguity and the the interpretation that you're supposed to like make for yourself with this, even though I think there's kind of a set core interpretation that everyone more or less agrees on, the, the core, <laughs> the broad strokes of, um and it's the same with david lynch so the broad strokes most people tend to go, yeah okay those broad strokes are there but there's lots of little things that you could take for yourself there's lots of your own little twists on it you can do uh but there is a comparison there this isn't as inherently weird although to be honest rewatching this uh the last 10 minutes are actually very david lynch in a lot of ways <laughs> there's a lot of david lynch in those last- and I, I, I mean i've not I've ever heard david lynch say he's a fan of this film but it would not surprise me if he is a big I fan think- of 2001 I imagine most directors are. I bet there's one that isn't. I bet there's like a really good director who just happens to hate Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> it's like I don't get it. I don't know what I watched. <laughs> I, I don't like Kubrick, uh, but it'll be someone surprised because I mean, you expect Michael Bay to say that. But I bet there's like a really good director who, for some reason, just hates Stanley Kubrick movies, and it's like, wait, what? I don't understand. It kind of like it's how like Peter Weir or something. He's like, I just don't. I don't understand it. Yeah, can, I can hate I, it. Kind of like how Christopher Nolan revealed that he really likes the Fast and the Furious franchise, and it's like, wait, what? <laughs> Isn't this also his favorite movie? I wouldn't surprise me. It seems like it's up his alley. <laughs> I mean, hell, Inter- I mean, like, Interstellar is basically yeah, a remake of it. <laughs> <laughs> so we should probably do that uh, later this year. Just since it's 2001. Yeah, our plate's a little bit full right now before the Godzilla movie, but. Um, I think another thing that separates this film is the choice of the music. Because right away, like, I know that there was a score that was made for the film, at least the first half. And then Kubrick said, 
mm, why don't we just use the blue Danube? <laughs> and sure enough, it works perfect. Um, I'm happy you know I, the name of it because I don't. To me, it's just the 2001 music. Um, well, yeah, that's the the waltz is the blue Danube. Um, oh, the waltz is that okay? What about the main theme? That's now? also Scratch Zarathustra. That sounds that sounds right. Uh, yeah, Strauss. I, I never remember it, but when someone says it, I'm like, oh yeah, that vaguely sounds like the last time I heard someone say it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, because um, the waltz, the waltz is actually that is used enough in other places, or I heard it in school enough that that still sounds right. like it's a different piece of music. Like, I, like when I hear that waltz in this movie, it sounds like okay, this is a famous piece of classical music that he's put in the movie. See, I can't separate the two anymore. Like, for me, the, when I hear that song, I don't hear, like, the waltz. I hear the dance between the spaceship and the space station. <laughs> yeah, but the main <laughs> really? theme, on the other hand, that, to me, is just 2001's music, even though it wasn't written for this, even though it's not... Right, or even the Requiem song is the song of the monolith now. Oh, the, uh, yeah, the, the chatting one? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I can't do it. I, oh, clearly, I can't do it. Uh... But, it's more of uh, a yeah. There you go. <laughs> Which we'll be hearing again, actually, because it's actually used in one, uh, a Godzilla movie that we'll be talking about soon. Right, and I think it, I think it's a smart choice because of its association with the monolith in this. Oh film. sure, yes. Uh, it's Something very, otherworldly. It's very distinct and unique, and the music is a, a big part of the character. Of the it film. makes it feel more important. Like you're watching something like although there are things in the movie that very much date it, you, it does come off a bit more timeless because you're using music that's timeless. Does that make sense? Like it, it just it, yeah, it, it sort of makes it feel important, like right from the beginning. I don't think that you couldn't achieve that with a score for it. Like I think I think certain composers could do that with with mm-hmm. an original score, but I, I get what you're saying. That effect is definitely there. Yeah, I don't know. Like it's almost like you're watching something that is—I don't want to say documentary, but something that's not quite a movie. I think, I think between we, a documentary and a movie. I think what you're kind of saying is, is that the music that's used in it. I mean, I don't know how old some of them are, but the waltz is definitely very old. So the fact that the music's already old, it means that it's not like it doesn't sound contemporary to 1968. So therefore, it doesn't sound like oh now it's even though it's actually older than that. So and but because it's become just like a piece of music that's always used, it's kind of mm-hmm. like. Uh, like, sure, I associate Ode to Joy with Die Hard, but Ode to Joy is so old that it's kind of timeless now. Like, Ode to Joy just sounds like a, a piece of music. It's, it's like, I don't know, Happy Birthday, yeah. I guess, is kind of the same thing where Happy Birthday does not feel associated with a time. It's just Happy Birthday. It's just it's just forever. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, and obviously, there's a risk. And I, okay, I'll just I'll say it before, because I know there's going to be at least a couple of comments. Yes, I know a lot of people associate the main theme with Ric Flair because he went on to use it as his entrance theme. He's a wrestler, by the way, Tar. <laughs> a lot of people were going to say this, huh? <laughs> yeah. Some people are going to say this because he used it. He's, he used it for literally decades. So to some people, they they, they knew it from him long before they ever heard or, or seen two thousand one: A Space Odyssey. So I know to a lot of people. I would have used the Requiem song as my entry music, but Godzilla beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> so now music's very good. Uh, the effects are very interesting, I think, in this movie, uh, because there's a lot of beautiful paintings. And don't get me wrong, you can tell that in a lot of cases it is just like a sort of two-dimensional like object moving through mm-hmm. space in some cases. So obviously there's some models too, but 
Um, and there is actually something, and this is something that I noticed on the Blu-ray as well, as well as 4K. I don't know if it was noticeable before then, if this is just like a, as quality's gotten better, this has become more visible. But there's, there's definitely points in the film where there's something in space. And you can almost kind of make out like a little square rectangle. around them. <laughs> Wait, what? It's like a rectangle, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can make out like a sort of, it's, it's just like a faint, like, as if it's just a slightly brighter square on the image. And it's not, I, I think it's just where you can sort of see they've kind of imposed in whatever they're putting onto the, the rest of the image. Um, it's a really, I mean, it's not a complaint. It's just a very minor thing. But it's it's one of those things you notice now because you're, you're... Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is something that you notice as the quality of the film improves. Like the, as you get the, the 4K restorations, like yes. some of the flaws are also more noticeable. That's it, as well though. As the details. That's it, though. It's very minor and... I would never give up how stunning this film looks otherwise to fix that because this No, movie... even the model work is just gorgeous. Yeah. In the, the, film. the sets are all very like highly produced. I mean, you've got essentially like a like a terminal waiting room on a space station and it's just there's this glorious like bright white light with this red and these red chairs and everything just pops and it's a lot of stuff because I, I think I noticed in the background it's, it's the Hilton it's like the Hilton Space Station 5 yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, just those little touches and there's so, a so Hilton like, there's Pan Am which is not around anymore but yeah <laughs> I mean, at the time it felt like a, a safe reference I'm sure yeah uh, I, I think so, some of the tech stuff holds up some of it feels a little oddly dated uh, or, or, or like okay they had a nice idea with that for example at one point in the, the film uh, Dave is playing chess with Hal, but it's on a screen, and it actually looks just like if you go to chess.com to play against other people online on mm-hmm. online chess, it looks just like what they're playing on that screen. Like it's actually kind of weird how it. I mean, I mean, sure, okay. How do you visualize chess on a two D screen? It's, I mean, you're going to get something similar, but it's just kind of. Uh, it came up, and I was like, you know what? This was in 1968 when computers were barely a thing, right? You know, the like a computer at this point was a, a fridge that costs thousands and thousands of dollars and could do like some simple math like that's yeah. and i'm exaggerating a little bit but that's where we were so fair, fair play um mm-hmm. also when i was googling something bef- before uh we came online uh i discovered that the the myth of the why it's called hal the one letter down from ibm is complete nonsense in oh fact, yeah yeah to, to the point where apparently kubrick and clark clark uh, being the co-writer and the one who authored the book uh said that if they'd noticed the that it was one letter down from Hal and that people would think that was something, they would have changed the name. But they didn't yeah. notice. So it's like, okay, it just is now. But uh. Yeah, it stands for something else. Um, I don't remember the acronym. but Yeah. Well, it stands for something in, in the, the context of the story, but they didn't name it because cause they can make an acronym out of anything if they, if they really want it to be a certain batch of letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at shield from marvel like they, they really went out their way to make sure that that spelt shield yeah <laughs> you know it doesn't it doesn't matter they just thought of words that would make some kind of amount of sense to make it happen but yes yeah and how was it even the original name they wanted to they were originally going to do like um i think athena or something which kind of reminds me of when we watched uh demon seed and their ai system was named proteus they always want to go for the Greek god names, much like, you know, what we name the planets and the stars and stuff like that. 
That makes some amount of sense. Mm-hmm. That makes some amount of sense. Uh, and we haven't really talked about uh, what the movie is yet, uh, weirdly, I guess, because we're saving it mostly <laughs> for spoilers. I, I, I suppose the, the, the key thing is that, yes, we're in space for the majority of the film, and it's about trying to get to uh, Jupiter, basically. Uh, I'll leave it there. <laughs> and we'll get into everything else in spoilers. Uh, <laughs> but it is notable that the opening 25 minutes has no dialogue. The final 30 minutes also has no dialogue, uh, which is unique in and of itself. Uh, there's definitely some ballsy moments that there are sequences where Kubrick just basks in the uh, the the grace of the space travel and the grace of I'm sure sets that they were very proud of that that spin at the right pace so it looks like the actors are running around a circular thing and all the rest of it. At least that's, I'm assuming that's how they did it. Yeah, that set design is really awesome. And yeah. like when you hear about how they um, how it like came together, like it basically splits splits apart like an Oreo in order to like get uh, like a camera in there and then the camera mm-hmm. can track because when you when you look at the set it looks like a big hamster wheel but there is a line down the middle of it that's slightly wider than the other lines and that's where the camera can can go down a track and follow them it's a really cool set honestly the one that because that one makes sense to me because it's circular i can kind of get how the set spins as he's mm-hmm. running right the one that really gets me is before that in the shuttle going from the station the space station to the moon mm-hmm. there's like an air hostess who in her i what do they call it grip shoes i think they were called uh, yeah but she walks like up the wall and then onto the ceiling and yes. okay maybe you're spinning the set but for this to look right the camera has to move at the exact right pace for this to work yeah. so is that how they did it I, I don't know. There's another shot where both um, Dave and Frank also go down a hallway and then onto an, a, a platform where they walk upside down. And I think the camera has to like stay still and then start rotating at the same time that they step on the platform. I don't... It, it kind of like hurts my brain to think how they how they did it. Because well, the reason why... Because the reason why this was it's boggling my mind... It's super impressive though. It was boggling my mind because there's no tell. I was expecting like a little bit of judder or something when it started spinning because the camera can't perfectly match the spin of the, the set. So yeah. that it looks like the camera's... Because it'd have to spin in the opposite direction so that it looks like the camera's staying still. Because that's that's the effect you want. You want it to look like... Because that's what it looks like. It looks like the camera's yeah. staying still as she's walking up and around onto the ceiling. But it's so perfect that I have to think there's something more to it than just the, the set was spinning. Because the camera would have to spin in the opposite direction at just the right speed, starting at just the exact right time, that I can't yeah. buy they pulled that off. <laughs> I think they do, because uh, in the commentary, they, they bring it up. Um, the actor who plays Dave Bowman is talking about how how they did the shot when when he and Frank have the scene together. where It's essentially the same thing. And yeah, but that's even assu- the way he explains it was just like, and as soon as we step on this platform, now the camera is moving on a separate platform in order to match. I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> how did they time that so perfectly? Well, no, but that's uh, two things. One, their examples in a circular room, which is different. That's easier. And two... No, it's the same thing, though. I'm talking about the scene where they, they walk straight down a hallway and then the end of the hallway, there's like a spinning room. And that and it, the shot never leaves the hallway so it's the same. It's the oh, same okay, thing. Okay. 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 I know what you're talking about. I'm thinking of yeah. the, I'm thinking of the running, the jogging, and stuff, and that 
central no that that was area. just a, a camera on a track yeah in the middle of the oreo set <laughs> in the middle of the oreo set um <laughs> yeah. so it's so smooth though it feels like it's the sort of thing where today you could do it because you could use like after the fact you could clean it up a little bit. if it wasn't perfect you could clean it up a little bit in the computers but this is yeah. 1968 they can't they can't do that so it was kind right. of blowing my mind as, as i was just thinking about it as i was watching it tonight i was like oh this how did they how did they do this so perfectly because the only way i can think of them doing it with a set spinning is the camera has to spin in the opposite direction but it has to do it just the right pace that it just feels like it's not moving because it genuinely <laughs> feels like it's not moving yeah but anyway <laughs> yeah it, it it really is like uh mind-blowing when you really like it seems like it would be a, a simple effect because it's something we can do easily today in film but like when you really sit down and think about like how do you do this practically it's it seems like it would be too difficult to to not have some sort of tell like you're saying well, um, and the part that makes it difficult is the fact that you want the camera to appear to be still. If you if you just had the mm -hmm. camera follow the person who's walking, it would be easy because you would just have the camera would just stay still in real life, and the set yeah. would spin with the actor, and it would look like the camera's tracking with the actor uh, as the as the set is spinning. But because Kubrick made the choice, no, I want this to look like it's still. It made yeah. it harder. It made it more difficult, and that's the impressive part. So, uh, so that that's just crazy nonsense again everybody <laughs> a, a madman and whoever's building these sets and all these contraptions yeah. uh so that's just really cool um i mean we should probably get into the, the meat of this <laughs> we start talking about what the movie is and talk about different sections and and stuff uh so sure i suppose so you know uh one one last thing that mm -hmm. it, the movie actually reminds me the only other movie that i think i can compare it to is fantasia have you ever seen fantasia i've seen phantasm no not the same <laughs> that was actually a very 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 like deep cut reference to the hit television show buff of the vampire slayer there's an episode where xander for Halloween, I'm I, I just so regret bringing this up. <laughs> Xander, he pulls out some videotapes for them to watch on Halloween, and he pulls out Fantasia, and then gets really upset because it was supposed to be Phantasm. To continue. <laughs> okay, well, you've not seen the the movie. It is a you know a, a classic Disney animated film, but it is also a movie that is, it is using the form of the visual medium in order uh complemented by like famous symphonies in order to tell a, a visual story there's no dialogue in any of the sequences and um there is also a sequence at the end of it where they had to really like come up with some insane practical effects even though it's an animated movie they use special effects um with camera works and glass paneling and stuff in order to come up with the scenes that they wanted to have in the film. And I think, um, and it's the only movie that I can kind of compare these two in, a, in a, in that sense, like it's, um, <clears throat> plus the use of the classical music for a visual storytelling. I think there's a lot of parallels to the films. Anyway, that's all you've not seen it. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> it sounds like a fine point of break. I can't confirm or deny any of this, but it sounds, <laughs> Sounds interesting. Sure. <laughs> uh, all right. So I will thank our Patreon producers for the month uh, before we get into the spoilies. 
so thank you to Tyler Hess, Cindy Palacios, David Sharp, Board Now, Al Treisman, Christopher Moy, Brett Williams, and David Brown. Thank you all very kindly uh, for being our Patreon producers, which you can be at $20 or more. Uh, but you can support us for much less than that, can't you, Tara? That's right. Um, if you enjoy our reviews, please check out our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash TV. And if you donate as little as one dollar per month, you will get access to bonus episodes of the Ace. If you're looking for your favorite B movie schlock, as Peter would say, perhaps it's there. Um, we got lots of mystery science theater adjacent films, including one starring Red Brown and Garrett Graham and David Carradine and all the favorites. So please head over and check that out. Thank you. Is that something you specifically associate with me saying schlock? Yeah, I never used that word before I met you. <laughs> I didn't come up with that. I mean, I definitely have taken that from other people who use it. <laughs> so, um, well, I, I'm not taking credit for it, but that's okay. Much like film, it's okay to be inspired by others. Yes, yes. I'm glad to inspire you, Tara. Thank uh, you. So, <laughs> I don't think you understood what I just said there. <laughs> 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 um, so yes uh, so spoilers from this point on for 2001 uh, it's a weird way to talk about it. there's almost no much you can, can really spoil because it's such a an audio visual experience rather than uh, a story experience but uh, we have to start talking about the dawn of man because the movie very boldly starts with a, with a caption saying the dawn of man uh, well actually it, it starts with a blank screen and just music played yeah, I mean, other old movies that do that, that are long. Uh, no, they don't. Yeah, they do. No, they don't. Other movies have overtures. Movies, movies start with, like, Metro Girl in May or whatever, and then they'll have orchestra music Tara, and, and other movies credits. have overtures. This is not unique to 2001. Yeah, but they always have something on the screen. This is a blank <laughs> screen. Sure, fine. Maybe that's true. I, I can't remember if other ones have <laughs> blank screens or not. But overtures were a thing, especially for long movies in the 50s and 60s. This is not that unique. This, I mean, they would have an overture with credits, opening credits rolling. No, no, no. Separate from opening credits. Different. Mm. Other movies have overtures. Oh my God. I, do I have to Google movies with overtures? <laughs> and a blank screen? I think it's supposed I'm, to be because it's the same music that plays like over the monolith. So I think it's supposed to be implying something. Oh my god! Lest the films with overtures. There's a Wikipedia page for it and everyone. <laughs> there's literally tons. Now most of them are in the fifties, sixties. There's some in the seventies. Um, ben Hur had an overture. Spartacus had an overture. You like Spartacus? You, you love Spartacus? That an overture? I haven't seen Spartacus in. A long time. <laughs> it's not a Kubrick movie. Hell, it's yeah, a, I, it's I a mad, it's good, mad, mad, mad world. Had an overture. The original mm -hmm. Doctor Doolittle had an overture. Tons of movies had overtures. This is not <laughs> unique to 2001, <laughs> damn it. I still think this movie does it in a unique way that is meant to mean something. Is this is this like when I? There's a couple of movies in the past where I, I have jokingly said we have to start with the like the the the, the Fox logo or something. And I feel like this must be what you felt like when I said that. I did not expect you to go, no, we have to talk about the overture. There's, there's stuff to talk about in the overture, but there's nothing there on is. the screen. <laughs> I took this as just a bygone era thing and nothing to do with the movie itself, really. 
but I understand. I mean, the movie also has an, an intermission, which is something that we don't get anymore. Yes. Also, the bygone era. There's also music at the end, so there's like an outro overture as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the movie looks like it's two and a half hours. It's actually more like two twenty once you take off uh, the start and the end and the three minute intermission. But all right, can we get to Donna Man now? Are we on? Don- <laughs> Are we on Donna Man? Don't get sassy with me. I'm not being sassy. <laughs> I'm just I'm here to talk about apes. I, I think what's funny is that uh, I just it occurred to me as I was watching this opening section that oh this came out the same year as Planet of the Apes. That's kind of funny. That uh the probably the most famous ape scene in the history of cinema came out the same year as Planet of the Apes, but it's not Planet of the Apes. Yeah. And this is where we have to start talking about the monolith and what it means, because essentially we see this ape society. We see them be attacked by a, a by a leopard. I think, was it, I think it was a leopard anyway. Yeah, that's a crazy scene. Yeah, especially since it's clearly, you know, it's obviously it's a guy in a, an ape suit. And that, and that it's a ca- real cat. Yeah, that cat looked real. So uh, <laughs> some serious stunt work going on there. But of course the monolith appears. We get the, you know, the, the creepy music uh, that comes with it. And it's just like they're, they're all confused. They're, 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 they're gallering around it that they don't understand. And then, of course, the, it, it progresses and one of the apes starts to use a tool. And this is where, you know, the... the dun, 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 right? And it's essentially the dawn of man and this ape is learning to use a tool for the first time. That is the, the scene that we're watching. We're watching the beginning of tools. And one of the little details that I really like about after this is that you see that not only does other do the other apes start using tools and they start to, like eat better because of it because they've killed a, a deer or whatever it is um but it's a taper there you go uh the little pig-like looking thing it's a taper but what i like about this is that you also notice in these following scenes that even the the younger apes like the, the child children apes they're, they're starting to like play with the, the bones as if they're tools as well so you can yeah. already you already get like an example of this is passing down to the mm-hmm. next generation so you, there's a lot being said here uh bizarrely yeah i think it's also interesting that it's it's not just a tool it's a weapon that they learn how to use and Mm -hmm. it's uh because when we first see we see like two different tribes and one of them is got like control of this dirty water hole but now that the apes the one of the ape tribes has touched the monolith and they've had this enlightening experience that's going to change the course of history and they now all of a sudden they have a weapon to use against their own species to gain advantage and become greedy and are able to uh to have war like it's also showing like the earliest wars that we've had between our own species now so we have this technology that has driven us to war already which I think is, I think it's a theme that is in the book, to be honest, like a, a, a lot. <laughs> and also the very next scene that we go to, like the, the ape throws the bone into the sky and it's a classic like shot of where the bone becomes, a lot of people think is a spaceship, but it's actually a, uh, like a nuclear satellite. That's a, it's a weapon. So it goes from like a shot of a weapon to, the most advanced weapon that we've ever had. Yeah. Uh, question though, after they start using the bones as tools and as weapons, 
Um, I didn't get the impression the conflict was still there for much longer after that. It, it felt like the, the ones that had the tools be just became dominant, and then it became unified as one society. Mm -hmm. uh, so Well, I mean, the ones that became dominant were the ones that got the water hole. And so, still a war over territory. Well, yeah, but I, I'm saying going past the war, though, it actually brought people together and made them advance. Like, it's not yeah. just about oh, yeah, the conflict. Yeah. The conflict actually ends because one of them gets the means to end it. Uh, right. So, I, I think that's a very important distinction. Um, and I do think, something that I don't think I ever noticed, actually, is when we get this ship going to Jupiter later on in the film, it only occurred to me for the first time watching it this time that it actually looks like a big bone. And I'm like, okay, that's mm -hmm. intentional. That's intentional <laughs> that it looks like the bone from the start of the movie. Very good. It's also break. the same reason why in the hit television show Mystery Science Theater 3000, this spaceship looks like a bone. <laughs> How dare you? Right? Hit television show is reserved for one thing alone. You came up with your own phrase for Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> I think it's I think it fits. How about the, the cult gem, Mystery Science Theater 3000? I just wanted to piss you off. <laughs> <laughs> is this because I saw it earlier about the yeah. overture? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, some of the shots here though are stunning. I, I particularly like uh, the shot looking up at the monolith with the sun kind of coming up over the top of it. So it looks like it looks like it looks, looks like dawn, but it's dawn from the weird perspective of the sun coming up over the the monolith rather than the horizon. Uh, yeah. I mean, we hear the music play every time that the, the that the monolith appears, but it seems to be very intense when you get the shot of like the sun touching it. Like there's there there's something about that alignment that is like really sending out a signal or or something. It's very harsh. Yeah, I think actually before we talk about a lot of the other segments, I actually want to just sort of stick on the monolith and just go to the monolith scenes just to keep this sort of thematically tied because I feel like a lot of the conversation here just would be better if we keep this together. Because uh, obviously then the monolith is found in the moon. And I do want to talk about the scenes leading to the moon, but we'll do that separately. Um, and again, beautiful shots of all the, you know, all these astronauts on the moon and uh, it, it, the visual's really great. It lets out this high pitch sort of sound, which we later find out is the signal going towards Jupiter, which is why they're sending a ship out there. Um, and at the end of the film, of course, uh, after the time away me stuff, or at least just the, the, the visual of how time has advanced uh, with the astronaut with Dave uh, mm -hmm. and the monoliths there. Because uh, I think one of the things I liked about this, because in fact, it's not, that's not even the next time you see it. The next time you see it, it's floating in space. It's floating getting, around Jupiter, yeah. 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 But so he's lying in bed and he's pointing up at it and then he turns into the star child. I, I, I love that. And this is so weird. Because so, this scene, like I say, it's very weird and surreal. You've got this monolith that appears in front of the bed. And the camera cuts back to Dave and he's turned into the star child. And the camera turns back to the monolith. And then the camera tracks in. And because the music started, I think it's actually on that track where the first real note of the music starts to hit. It's like, da, da. Mm -hmm. and then it transitions to the, you know, the final shots of the movie. Um, but it makes the monolith, like that moment feels so epic. And I actually almost started laughing this time watching it because of how ridiculous all this is on paper. But how emotional I feel watching it because it's just the filmmaking presents it in such a way. Yeah. It just it makes it feel important. Um It does. But, and I think using that song also, it's just it's such an epic, like big brass instrument. Like you can 
you can sort of imagine this song being used like as a Superman theme. Not that we don't have a great one. We do have a great Superman theme, but you can sort of hear this like as a Superman theme. Like it's just so big and epic and important. And like man is <laughs> man, man will never be the same after this. Yeah, uh, man is transcended. So I think, so I mean, everyone generally agrees that the monolith in some capacity is there as a sort of test to get to the next stage of evolution. And mm-hmm. that it's on the moon. But the idea, okay, so the first time it appears, it encourages apes to start using tools, which, you know, starts the, the evolution of man. And then the next time it's on the moon, so we've had space travel to get to the moon, and then its next sort of test is, oh, out by Jupiter. You have to go even further. You have to get to it out in Jupiter. And getting there proves that we're ready for the next stage of evolution, humanity. Whether or not you believe that this alien race, this this uh, intergalactic civilization created us or just changed us by appearing in front of the apes is maybe mm-hmm. up for debate. Um, I mean, if I was to lean towards one, I don't know if there's a right answer here. This is just kind of what you really feel more than anything. I think I feel that they created us. And... And I think it's because the way that the star shells coming towards the Earth at the end, to me, feels like... I don't know. It feels like they're initiating the next phase. Like, okay, this our spe- or a little test, our test subject. And the, the other reason, actually, is a thematic thing because of HAL. I think the purpose of HAL 9000 is because that's artificial life that we created and we're not ready right. to create life and it goes wrong. So I think that theme for me kind of almost... And not confirms, but at least to me, it feels like a confirmation that no, we're I think, created I think by so too. the aliens. I, I think it is very much like the, we now are, I, th- I think this is like linked to, I don't really know philosophy, but I, I've heard that this is linked to like Nietzsche and his, his uh, belief that humanity right now is on like a, Precipice. like a wire. And yeah, so between you know, what we prime evil, what we were and what we're going to be, which is some sort of super being in the future. And I, I think the the theme that at least Arthur C. Clarke is, was talking about in the in this is that the only thing stopping us is um, whether or not we destroy ourselves and like our constant need to to, to create new things and new life and new technology. And we want to create artificial intelligence, but will that be the thing that destroys us? Because it now also wants to be on top. So, <laughs> so long as we can like... I laugh at that because that, that one, that particular point feels like just a fun science fiction idea. Whereas everything else you just said feels like, oh yeah, that all feels very philosophical. Uh, but the, the idea, well, I mean, the, the fear that AI will definitely want to be on top and like take over. Well, is... that's that's one of the things of life, right? Is the the need to survive is survival. So if we give, um, if we create artificial life that is clearly more capable than we are, because it could do things we can't do, then why wouldn't it like try to destroy us in order to for its own survival? Because even though it's better than us. We still have the off switch. So if they can remove us, then that increases their chance of survival. So it's, I don't know, like it's still, um, 
I'm just having fun because I know you actually fear this, and I, <laughs> I, I, I love it as a sci-fi concept, but I don't take it seriously like you do. So I'm poking fun at you right now for it. I do. I think it is something we need to, you know, think about. Like the movies have been warning us for a long time that <laughs> creating artificial life is dangerous, and so long as we don't destroy ourselves, then we can, <laughs> we have a chance to 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 you know become super people as long eventually. as as long as we're good parents there's no reason why artificial life couldn't be a good child that's all i'm saying okay yeah so you have the um the asimov way of thinking of robots i, I have the terminator <laughs> 2 way of thinking about robots thank you very much <laughs> all right well yeah i mean this is obviously something i've thought about and i yeah. still think about and i'm afraid of and um, even though I allow it into my home, I have a Google device up there listening to me right now. Hello. <laughs> I, so, yeah, no, I, I think in terms of philosophy, yes, I have no doubt that philosophy, like professors could probably write like a, a 10,000 page dissertation about 2001 and subjects and, and take, look at it from lenses that we could never even possibly as a couple of laymen just sort of <laughs> try to talk about a movie. Uh, yeah. Uh, but no, you're right. It's, it's, it's a total philosophical movie. Um, I, 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 the Marvelous stuff's really interesting, and obviously other things have tried to then take that and do a more conventional way of telling that story of unlocking the mm -hmm. next phase. But I, I think why I like it so much of, about how ambiguous it is is because we wouldn't comprehend it, we wouldn't understand it. So when Dave goes through the 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 infinite and it's the wacky light show, and it appears that he's taken to an alternate planet. Because it's all these weird colors, but you can clearly see like mountains. You can see water, and it feels yeah. Because like, well, some of it is familiar. Like there's some of it's like clearly okay. That's in Arizona. <laughs> oh sure, but like it's it's all been altered color wise, and it's yeah. like distorted. And I think I don't think because I mean obviously we just know that Jupiter is a gas giant. There's no way this is Jupiter, but I do. Be I, I do genuinely believe though that this alien race have taken him to another planet their you know their home planet or one of their home planets and yeah th and that's why when even when he arrives when dave arrives in the suit he's already wrinkled because the journey's taken time i, mm -hmm. I think that's already the passage of time of them taking him to this place and then of course he has his weird you know time lapse moment where he kind of keeps seeing him his older self then he transitions to the older one eating his dinner and then he transitions to the old, really old one the bed who's dying yeah, we are not doing this in order, are we? <laughs> no, I have no interest in doing it in order, it's fine. Uh, we're going to talk about other stuff. We're, we're, we're on the, the theme of the monolith. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the things you've, you have brought up, um, there are answers for them in the in the book version of this, but I'll just say, like, don't take the book as answers, because Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick wrote the screenplay, and then Arthur C. Clarke wrote the book as the movie was being made. So even though there are technically answers for this in the book series, Kubrick did his own thing, and there's yeah. no reason to believe that he would that he those answers are the it's same. A, it's another slight comparison to Twin Peaks is that you know David Lynch obviously is the one who's known for Twin Peaks, but it was co-created and a lot of it was written by Mark Frost, and Mark Frost did a book after Twin Peaks. They did another one after the new season. Uh, called the final dossier and it was like all these extra little bits of mythology and some little answers to things that the show never answered and one or two of them like you don't know like how, okay, how much does David Lynch buy into all this like does he believe all this shit that Mark Cross has put in this book 
but there's a couple of things that actually slightly contradict things that were in the show so it does kind of feel mm -hmm. like oh it's nice but is it really official i mean it's it's, it's official and that it was released under the banner and whatever but is yeah, it really what david lynch believes i would say this is also pretty close to just his adaptation of the shining i mean the shining probably so much of that film is just also visual and not really explained to you um but if you want answers i suppose you could read the book however it's a different interpretation so those answers might not be the same it's you know it's a Stanley Kubrick definitely understood that filmmaking was a visual medium and that that's true here as well we, we never get explanations for anything that's going on in the last 20 minutes we just see it we just see what's mm -hmm. happening and the weird sort of way that Dave kind of sees it himself and I mean because I'm because I do genuinely believe that he does, he's, he's not traveling through time I do believe he lives out the rest of his life in that that place they've got him in and I think what I love about the set design for this this like fancy white room is that it's clearly based on Earth. They've given him like what looks like really fancy decadent furniture, little statues, but then the mm -hmm. floor is this super white, like alien looking floor that you'd see yeah, in a spaceship. Yeah, it's all lights. It's like a discotheque that doesn't have color. <laughs> and it, it, no, it no, I, I agree. It, it is just like a fishbowl. Like something has said, okay, we've reached into yeah. the mind of him and we've created something we think he'll be comfortable in. It's like a, like when you have a, a lion in a zoo like okay we'll put some sticks out there because would, lions like sticks <laughs> well that's a fair comparison but i would go further and say that it is it is legitimately like an alien has tried to recreate something on earth but has missed mm -hmm. the vital details so it just feels off to us like it's not quite yes. right it, it's the way it's the way i always describe the room the room is written by like an alien who's heard people speak in english but never really quite understood it <laughs> yes <laughs> that, this is this is Tommy Wiseau trying to recreate a, a human apartment. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, all the basics are there, but um, yeah, I, that scene is. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, I love the way the the film ends like this, and that's what I was talking about. Also, when Kubrick was unsure of how to how to create this this uh, this story of how do we portray time has passed, and I think it was. Um, the actor who plays Bowman, who uh, says, well, what if I just look at myself in the future and then when I look back, I'm no longer there and I'm older. And that's what they went with. And it is, I, I, I sort of agree with you. The only thing that throws this off is the, the sequel. So if it's just the movie on its own, then yeah, he's definitely which, lived out which all of is. those years. No, which, which it is because... Kubrick didn't know about a sequel. He didn't know that. Like this was yeah, made as I, its own I thing. I choose to to yeah. believe that also. But we are going to watch the the sequel, and the sequel takes place ten years later, and Bowman's in it. Okay. Well, the sequel's fan fiction, and I, I mean, <laughs> to be fair, I kind of felt that way anyway before I'd even. I mean, I've never seen the sequel. Well, but... I mean, it's also kind of like The Shining with the you know there is a sequel made for it, but. It's sort of a sequel to the film because the same characters are there and it's, but it's also a sequel to the book because Arthur C. Clarke wrote, you know, three more books. It's a, it's a wonky mess is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, uh, we want to make a, a sequel to a masterpiece yes. that doesn't need one, but there are books so we could tell more stories if we wanted to. Yes. And we and, like money. So. And clearly it was successful <laughs> because they did the third and fourth book, didn't they? No, they did not. Okay, so let's move on. <laughs> um, well, I don't think the sequel is bad, but I do think of it as like 
something separate. It's yeah, it's it's, it's non-canon. It's just it's the extended. It's the EU of two thousand one. <laughs> sure. A little fan fiction add-on that doesn't really yeah. work. So now let's go back. Let's go back to uh, so just after the the ape stuff. We we and this is the thing. It immediately cuts to the the waltz. It's space, and we've got a shuttle going up to the station, and it and. I don't think we can emphasize enough how much it basks in this. There's a lot of runtime yeah. spent just watching the ship spin and like slowly dock and the music's playing. And it's, I think it's very hypnotic. Like oh, there's, there's uh, something very bewitching about just the dance of watching how, okay, how does this space shuttle, this Pan Am space shuttle, dock into a spinning wheel-like space station and i have uh and i was thinking about because obviously i'm when i'm watching stuff for the show especially when it's not something i'm watching for the first time i am kind of like okay i'm looking for more things to analyze and more things to to talk about Mm -hmm. and i think there's actually a really simple little touch here in the transition from the 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 ape stuff to this which is we literally get the dawn of a tool we get the the first virtual which is just a bone being used as a weapon to hit things and break things up and maybe stab something and Mm -hmm. then we cut to this elegant waltz of space travel, which is the mm-hmm. most advanced thing human civilization has made. And it's not it's not like passionate, it's not like someone buying sticks together and make making something happen. It's elegant. There's a stewardess like flirting with the captain. There is like a, you know, a movie playing in the back of the chair. And then we yeah. cut to the outside and it's like this elegant spin, it's a dance, and it's like the total opposite of an ape just smashing a bone against a rock. But it's to show how yeah. far we've come. It's to show this is the start of using a tool. And this is the most advanced tools we've ever made. And look how elegant it is. And look how simple it is. Which yeah. we've not even got to. I mean, we've had space travel. But we've never had it to a point where you can just book a flight to the moon if you want. This is, yeah, it, it's just it's depicted in a way like in 2001, at the time that yeah. this movie was made, this would just be normal. You can just book a flight to the moon. Honestly, it's always funny. I never think about this being set in 2001, but the one moment that sticks out to me is feeling like, oh, that that feels a bit dated, is later on in the film when Hal says he was designed in 1992, and I went, oh, yeah. that feels ancient. <laughs> <laughs> 1992? I mean, yeah, the title of the movie is 2001, so we know when the film takes place, or is supposed to be depicting. So it is, like, old future. But honestly, that's my favourite kind of sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> I love... I love going back in time to think, and what would our future be like? And, hey, and just getting it so wrong. <laughs> to be fair, there's a few things that gets right. I mean, I mentioned that him, well, he's asleep in his chair, but there's a movie playing in the screen in the back of the chair in front of him. Now, obviously, that's a really normal thing in planes now, but mm-hmm. I can't imagine that was a normal thing in planes in 1968. Yeah, I mean, even um, Frank and, and Dave are watching a news program on like what looks like an iPad. It, yeah, I don't know yeah. if it's built in or not, but it looks like it's been like the it looks like it's been adjusted so that when they're looking at it, it's at an angle because they're eating also. So it looks like it looks like it might be an iPad. I never got iPad, but I, like I, I guess yeah. I guess the comparison I would make is it to me it looked more like a computer monitor that can swivel and spin and be adjusted. But I mean, it, I mean maybe because but, but even it, it does seem like it disappears. So yeah, I don't I, know. But even that's kind of something that they didn't have in the, at the time that is as right. We did eventually get to that point. So yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but you know we have him dark and he's he's in again. We have this. But on the on the flight too, there's a fun scene where the stewardess is walking, and our our guy um, 
Haywood Floyd is asleep and he's let a pen go mm-hmm. and the pen is like floating around. And this was kind of interesting to watch like the behind the scenes stuff for it because in order to, to do it, um, luckily double-sided tape had just been invented (laughs) so they just stuck it onto a glass panel and somebody was just moving around so it looked like it was floating so that when the stewardess comes up she can just pluck it off of the glass and (laughs) put it away in his pocket it's just a fun little detail that's kind of amazing even the idea of the pen as well as a tool is you know again (laughs) very elegant and just floating around uh but when when he comes into the space station and you know, he has a, there's a couple of scenes here. He has a scene where he, he sits and talks to a couple of other hoity-toity people who are on their way back to Earth. And they hear where he's going in the moon and like, oh, hey, that's been very hush-hush and no one's talking about what's going on. And they, they think there might be like a pandemic breaking out in that part of the moon and that's why it's all been... Well, it, it's also showing that they're Russian. Yes. And, you know, this is made during, you know, the heightened Cold War fear. Uh, and... Uh, this is they're they're also talking about like we have laws like treaties and stuff that are being broken here because you know one of our ships were were trying to to make an emergency dock there or something and they were denied and you know that breaks these very (laughs) important contracts that we have between our nations still so there is still like tension between countries that is depicted in this future did you get tensions from that? I don't know if I got tensions necessarily. Well, I mean, there's they seem to be scientists, so they're like, um, you know, this is something that we should know. You should be sharing this information with us, like if you guys know something. I kind of, I kind of. He it, says, "I'm not at liberty to say." <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of. I, I, I took it. I mean, maybe you're right, but I, I took it more of like it's a top secret thing that's going on, and they want to know because. Well, it's just we want to know. We're the public. We want to know what the top secret thing is. Um, sure. And he's trying to get the information out of him, and he's not giving it to him. Um, I kind of took the whole, you know, part of the, you know, the law that's being broken uh, is weird. I didn't take that as a as an accusatory. Oh, your government's being dicks about this. Like, why, what's going on? Um, mm-hmm. I, I took it more of a yeah. So that this is how serious they're taking it. Is that they endangered the life of some of our pilots, and it turned out they're okay. They got they got they got somewhere safe, and that's fine. Um, because everything else after this didn't feel like they were hiding it from the opposition. It just felt like, no, we can't announce any of this to the public yet. Everything they talk about in the, the, the meeting scene, the boardroom, was right, all yeah. public. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. But I do think there is a little bit of tension in that scene still. But then, like, once we know what's happening, then those tensions are, like, clearly they've all worked together in order to be able to travel to Jupiter yeah. to do this next part I, I, I guess no i got tension in the scene but i didn't get it as like a, a cold war because part because part of what i was thinking this movie was doing is that it's you know it was made in the middle of the cold war so the idea that we that's all done and like you know the us and russia are good friends now is kind of a future thing it's like hey this is how things have changed in the future well it sounds like they still have some treaties and stuff that are in place in order to be like so long as we don't break these treaties we're we're friends, we're allies, but it seems like whatever has happened in the past there with the, with the ship that was trying to land it in that area is clearly breaking some treaty because they bring it up. I forgot what I was going to say because you jumped up at the point. Never mind. <laughs> I thought you were done. <laughs> no, I had another point. I was building up to something and I forgot what it was. 
Oh, big surprise. What? <laughs> yes. I don't feel. I don't feel bad about it. Well, I feel bad about it. I had a point to make. Well, if it's important, you'll remember it. No, because we're going to talk about different scenes. So it doesn't matter now. We'll move on. There's a point. Oh, yeah, no. Here it is. This was it. The tension in the scene. Oh, I was trying to say. <laughs> the tension I got in the scene from the other guy was more that he just wasn't getting anything out of him. He wanted him to talk to him as, as a colleague, as someone who was like, you know, he saw as a, as a peer, as one of his equals. And... Our, our, our character is just saying, no, I'm not at liberty to discuss. And it creates this awkward tension because they're trying to offer him a drink. And one of the women sort of jumps in and says, are you sure you don't want to have that drink? Ah, like, oh, I don't have time. Sorry, I have to go. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I sort of took this as the, the setting up the secret of nature of it. Um, I didn't really think about too much of the, the Cold War implications beyond just, oh, everyone seems to be working together now. So it's showing that we're past the Cold War. Um, mainly because I, I don't think the rest of the movie like plays into like any potential tensions that still may exist though if it's there it's there as kind of like a little easter egg i guess yeah i i think so because we we do get some stuff like we we see different flags for like china russia america and something else i think probably england or something yeah well i think we say something (laughs) um yeah so i i just got the impression that everyone was kind of you know together on this uh and maybe has been for some time was was the gist i got especially since when he first goes up to the station and the the, the sort of the person at the reception is like getting them in uh she's got literally like six buttons with languages and it's not and there's a lot more than six languages but these six languages are the, the, the six buttons she's got and mm-hmm. russian was one of them english was one and then there was you know a few other ones um so i i, I think it's given us that we, we get him phoning home uh to, to, his to Stanley Kubrick's daughter. Oh, is that Stanley? I'll, I, you know, I'm going to be yeah. honest here. Huh. She's not that good. <laughs> She's fine. Her acting here was a little rough. Oh, I thought she was cute. <laughs> I didn't realize that was his daughter. No, I'm just going to straight up say it. Nepotism is the thing. And I think Kubrick <laughs> may be a little guilty of it here because she's not very good. Well, I think she's all right. I've, she's uh... just, I don't know. Like kids are awkward on phones. I I felt she was be I, I could feel her being directed, uh, and like her confusion wasn't her what her dad on screen was saying. It was just her like react to this, react to this, say this, say this, honey. That she would say, yeah, I want a telephone or some, <laughs> some such. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I thought she was fine. I mean, kids are awkward on phones when like handed the phone like here talk to grandma like hi <laughs> like they're weird so they would make sense that they're more weird on a video call so dad though this isn't, this isn't some distant relative she doesn't see that much yeah kids are awkward on phones <sighs> yes but i, I, I'm I not think it's cri- fine i'm not critiquing she's awkward on the phone i'm critiquing that the awkwardness feels like bad acting <laughs> <laughs> Someone can I don't, act. I, I don't to know. Be we awkward. see lots of bad actors, and especially bad child actors. I think she's totally fine in this. <laughs> like, I know you think this is perfect, right? And I'm not trying to rain in your parade. I'm just saying the little girl's not that good, and the one scene she's in, she's not that good. That's all I'm saying. Let's move on. The scene, the boardroom scene, where he basically explains that they can't talk to the press. Uh, you're all under NDA. 
it doesn't use that phrase i'm just calling it that because that's what we call it now but mm. <laughs> you're not going to talk about this um not much to say in the scene of itself beyond what we already have but uh one of the things i really like is the, is the creepy music starts coming back in uh as they're on their way to the dig site where, where this thing's been found uh and they mention it's been there for like four million years and we, they get to the dig site and they're going down and we get the, the creepy music but one of the things that i really loved is that i noticed before they actually see them on the ground as the shuttles kind of like landing and docking there's a great shot from like inside like the uh the control room of the the base that the, the, the dig site and like the guy who's operating the controls with the door or whatever and he's just kind of in silhouette looking out at the ship but like it's so ominous and then you've got the music rising mm-hmm. as the as the shuttle's coming in it was really set in a mood in, in a way that felt like as they were getting closer and closer to the monolith it was kind of rising and rising as, as it was getting there before we even started to see it before we even yeah got he's a, lit a in a way that is almost sinister not that i think that he is i no, think no, it's just yeah. the, the that something is about to happen something important and even that like looks ominous but I, just again, the way he's lit like a lot of the, shadow like a lot of the shots in this movie it's particularly the space stuff um it sits on the shot of him watching the ship coming down for a long time as this ominous you know mm-hmm. music's playing and it really builds a feeling that it, again it's really confident it's the sort of thing where like if it, most movies try to hold a shot this long with just some music to try and create some tension it would it would probably suffer and it wouldn't work very well. Isn't it so nice to watch a movie that does hold on to a shot for a while and just oh, let yeah. you figure out what's happening? Not <laughs> cutting around every two minutes. Yeah, two, it's I said two so, minutes, two seconds. It's so <laughs> nice. Like it, it makes it makes the uh, I think that's that's what helps. Like you know, it is a long film and there isn't really a whole lot that that is uh, plot wise. Yeah, but funny it does. Is that like, people feel quick? People know. people say the this movie drags on they think it's boring or whatever and but, I have total well, opposite well, yeah, that's, that's what i'm getting to is that <laughs> i actually agree with what you were just saying there is that because the scenes last a long time after a couple of scenes if you check how far you are in the movie you're like oh wait 40 minutes have passed <laughs> how, how did yeah. that happen uh, it has the opposite effect with me because the scenes themselves don't actually feel like they're taking any longer to me because like because there is a truth to this where you could take because because the, we, we cut to the, the discovery the jupiter ship right we cut to that at about the 50 55 minute mark it's in that range you could take that first 50 to 55 minutes and do it in about maybe 10 <laughs> if you really <laughs> wanted to you could condense that down to just the bullet points of what it's doing you could michael bay that shit and it would be done in no time at all you would just go boom 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 plot point plot point plot point but no, we bask in the arrival to the station. We bask in the trip from the station to the moon base. We we bask in the trip from the base to the dig site. And it's all about yeah. getting to the monolith and getting to the, the thing. So much of these so much of these scenes are just like full of tiny little details that keeps your mind busy. Like like even the one scene where like you're looking at uh, like how how they use the toilet they have to like follow 10 steps before they can go to pee like what if they have to pee right away like that's actually kind of a funny scene but like or when they're when they're going from the um space station to the monolith they're like eating sandwiches and they're talking about how how like real they're getting like these sandwiches are getting a lot better these days and 
like do you have ham like like something that used to be ham like something they call ham anyway like oh they have synthetic food like this is really interesting but and yeah, all, these, and, and all the like little minor details like how do they live and that's a throwaway world. line as well. That's like a one scene throwaway moment that didn't mm-hmm. even need to be there. Like the, the idea that they have synthetic food, food is kind of irrelevant. It doesn't really matter, really. No, but it just adds to the to the world, like, and and how long we spend with uh, with Dave and Frank on the station. Like, it's important that we know what they're doing there. Like, this is a long journey, and they're spending it basically isolated, and they're. The right people for the job because they're totally calm and they love their hobbies but i like seeing how they live day to day on this space station or on this discovery yeah the ship yeah, yeah. uh no like I, I think the time it takes to do all this stuff is what makes the movie the movie um and i, I don't again it, a movie is more than just the plot details which i think is kind of a and i'm going i'm going to be a little insulting here i think idiots um don't understand sometimes that a movie isn't just what a plot a point to plot b point to plot c point it's so on and so on that's not all that makes a movie mm-hmm. um some movies are more about basking in the the moments and the feeling of the scene uh than just about getting through the plot points as quickly as possible that's not it's not it's not like a movie is not just an economy of how to quickly get through the story I mean, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, you have to be economical with certain things and what you're doing. Uh, Kubrick in choosing to tell his story at this pace means that he's having less plot overall, for example. You, you know, but that's okay. If the, the, if the point of the movie is just to go from, you know, the moon to Jupiter, because uh, you know, we, we skipped 18 months ahead and we're on the Discovery and we meet our two astronauts who are awake. Uh, everyone else who's going to be, you'll be there to research whatever they find when they get there is asleep. And it becomes kind of clear as the movie goes on. It's not obvious immediately, but through conversations with Hal, and then obviously when it's eventually revealed to to Dave that they don't actually know why they're going out there. They think they're just going to Jupiter because, hey, first mission to Jupiter, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's time that we did that as a society. Um, they don't actually get there, because we, we don't see, uh, was it Haywood, the character from the, the mm-hmm. moon stuff? We see him on videotape. I say tape, <laughs> but you know, we see him on video. It's a pre-recorded. Yeah. Yeah, it's a message. We see that like way later in the movie because he's he's missing for. You know, once we cut away from the moon and we go cut ahead eighteen months, that's those characters gone. We we don't yeah. see them again, other than that video message. So. Uh, yeah, it's easy to you know not expect. It seems like okay, we've gone from the dawn of man to, two thousand one or maybe two thousand to our next um stage so like it's easy to just think that those characters would never come back and this is a very it's, it's actually a surprise when haywood shows up again it's a very unconventional story actually when you break down into just the idea of a protagonist because this movie doesn't really have a main character and it's not supposed to have a main character because no i think most people when they think of the film though they think of the third part they think of Dave versus Hal. It's, I mean, it's the longest part, and he's he's the one who sort of like finds the thing at the end and goes through to the end of the story. But it, you know, the reason why we do disregard characters and just move ahead because the the whole idea being that the ape at the start of the movie is no more or less important than Haywood in the second part, who's no more or less important than Dave. The whole point is is that humanity as a whole are moving mm-hmm. on, and of course Haywood wouldn't be the one who goes on the big mission to Jupiter because that's not necessarily who he is. It's not what he's trained for. It's not his thing. If there was a, a lesser director and they made it today, then it would be. It would be. 
and well, he would I, somehow be related to the evil. And, and, and I guess the point <laughs> I'm trying to actually make here is that this movie could be a complete disaster in just about anyone's hands because mm-hmm. most filmmakers, if they don't have, if they don't follow the rules, and one of the rules is, is we have a protagonist we care about and we're emotionally attached to, then your story doesn't work. It's a work. bad movie. Yeah. yeah. The story just doesn't work. And here, it does work. And I'm someone who will be one of the first in many a movie that says, well, this doesn't work because I don't care about the protagonist. And I don't care about a protagonist in this movie. I mean, I know that I dislike Dave. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's fine, but it it's not about him. It's actually, it's about... like Humanity. It's about something larger, yeah. It's, it's about something yeah. more... And only someone who is a master of their craft can have that kind of focus and have me not feel like I'm watching like a, like a, a mess. <laughs> like I'm watching yeah. something that still feels like it knows what it's doing. Uh, and that's impressive. And I think that's why it feels so special because every so often you'll get a director or a creator or a storyteller who can genuinely do something different, but it, it doesn't end up feeling like oh, some experimental weirdo thing that didn't work or it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like something where i don't get attached or care like i do care i i get very emotionally invested in this movie but I, I get invested in like the larger themes that it's playing with i i get invested as with it as a as a mythical uh allegory or a mythical science fiction think piece more than i do a story with a character who might win or lose by the end uh yeah so I guess I'm trying to say it's impressive. <laughs> no, I yeah, I know exactly what what you mean. Like the, everything about this film, like when you just step aside and look at it, is as like a as a movie and comparing it with other films, like it does stand apart. Like it does feel different it, and special, and like there's something, uh, there's something otherworldly about the film. Like it, you're not watching a traditional movie. You're not watching something with a traditional score or traditional lead character. Like it's. It is a, a very special film that it, I don't think can be recreated. Yeah, and just, just to sort of summarize this point, like, technically, from a from the rule book perspective, it's wrong. Everything about it is wrong. From a, from a standard filmmaking and storytelling rule book, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. But that's so... Because I always say this, like, all the rules in filmmaking can and probably should occasionally be broken, but you have to understand why you have them in the first place. And clearly Stanley Kubrick knows what he's doing. But... You know, it's like the simple one that I always I always use as an example is there's, a, there's something called uh, the line, right, or the 180 degree rule, uh, some people call it. But the idea that if you've got two characters on screen, you always shoot them from the same side, right? No matter how many times you just change the camera angle for close-ups or whatever, you always shoot them from the same side because it can be a little jarring and confusing if you jump to the other side of the the, the room and shoot from that direction because they'll they'll swap sides. You're from the viewer's perspective, they'll flip. Um, the, the, the best example of that is like a sports game like when you're watching mm-hmm. a sports game you all they always have the cameras all on one side of the, the court or the field or the pitch because it would be really confusing if all of a sudden the camera was over there because it'd feel like they were shooting in the wrong yeah, direction someone who's running to the left is now running to the right you're like wait that doesn't my brain's yeah. broke <laughs> so so typically you stick to the one side you, you don't cross the line is that was the way i was told i know a lot of people call it the 180 degree rule um but you can break it, and then often you can. Uh, some, sometimes it can be because you want it to feel a little jarring because you understand that that's the, that what it's going to feel like, so you want a jarring moment because that works for the story, or you want to reveal something they'll say to the room. The, the example I always think of is at the start of X-Men First Class, of all things, there's a scene where young Magneto's talking to like a Nazi, and it's all shot from one side, and he's like having this sinister conversation, but when it crosses the line, 
you see there's like a secret room with lots of blades like behind the glass wall but it, but it's hidden for the first half of the scene because it's all from this one side so it's almost like a playing it's almost like if you imagine like a like a sitcom it's cutting to the to the audience side yeah you see well, all the audience it's funny you say that because i was just thinking of you know wandavision came out and oh, yeah, wandavision is yeah. very much shot like a sitcom but there are moments in Until it where <laughs> where there's something real comes in and it does do that it changes the angle of the camera to where you're I, looking at it from the opposite side now like something is yeah. breaking into it like it's supposed to be jarring yeah and that one i mean that one goes beyond breaking the, the line that that like that that'll go from your typical sitcom wide shots to all of a sudden you've got a really shallow depth of field close-up of a character's face and yeah you, and it's very intentional and that, that's a really it good very example. much takes you out of the world that you're yeah. in so that's, and that's that, that's a really good example of them knowing the rules of both what they're pretending to be, but also what it actually is going to be and yeah. using it to make us feel it in the camera work. Yeah. So, but that's, that's like a te- very technical one. Obviously, a lot of these things we're talking about are storytelling rules, but they're all there to be broken if you understand why you're breaking them and what you're doing with them. And this is this is just a case of like the concepts are so otherworldly that it's just it's, it's bigger than a character. I think another film you can compare it to is um, is La Jetée. La Jetée is very much like a visual, a visual medium of mm. like we're just showing you so much so that we're mostly just showing you pictures with like a narration over top of it, and but every every shot is so important, and even though it's just a still image, there's so much you can take away just from staring at those images for so long. Like everything is important in it. And that, that's also a film, I'd say film, it's, it's a short film, but it definitely breaks rules in order yeah, to tell yeah. a, a story that is not traditional. Yeah. But obviously it follows other rules that this one doesn't say. So this one doesn't use photographs, but that one does have a protagonist who you do well, emotionally get yeah. attached to. Yeah, so. That's true. Although uh, in the beginning of this movie, it is actually still photographs of Africa. <laughs> Oh, that's with fair. like sound effects over top. Yeah. Well, I think that's more of a, a, just a filmmaking like convenience than it is like a stylistic choice. I think. Sure. I'll say, but yeah, uh, but yeah. So yeah, so we're on the Jupiter. Or we're, sorry, we're on the Jupiter. I keep calling the ship the Jupiter. We're on, we're on Discovery, um, which is I don't need to say now because Star Trek started using that for one of theirs. <laughs> I don't find it annoying. I keep I keep expecting Michael Burnham to pop out of a duct or something. Uh, <laughs> so we get the Hal stuff, and the Hal stuff's obviously very entertaining. It's the stuff that I think most people remember from the movie if they don't think about it in like a larger yeah, scale. Yeah, it's the part that becomes like a, a horror film. Yeah, it's, it's the story of the the computer. You know, Hal nine thousand makes a mistake, and one of the things I I, I never really picked up on necessarily. Uh, until I was sort of digging into it a little bit before we started. Because obviously, I've always gotten the idea that, okay, this is an AI that we created. We weren't maybe ready to create a life form, and it goes badly. This is almost like a cautionary tale of why we shouldn't be doing this yet. Um, or, and I've, I've, I saw some other interpretations that, oh no, it's about a competing life form who might get to the monolith first and might actually evolve instead of us. Kind no, of I've thing. never thought of that, but that's interesting. Yeah, I I I, 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 lean, I don't lean towards that, but it's a fun idea. I like the the thought process behind it. 
Um, yeah, because Hal does know exactly what their mission is. Yeah, he's, he's, he's been told to keep it. And that was one of the things that I, I found out, that apparently in the book, uh, the idea of a paradox in Hal's programming is, and that's what he's basically feeling stressed and it's what causes his breakdown, is mm-hmm. the idea that... It is actually human error, yeah. Yeah, it's the idea that he has been told not to lie to any of the crew... Uh, if they ask the questions, but he's also been told not to tell them about this this mission, the secret mission. Uh, yeah, there's two conflicting orders for Hal so that it causes a malfunction. So yeah, he actually is right as human error, even though it sounds like he's covering for himself in the scene yeah. where he's saying that. An interesting thing in the movie also is when they're playing chess, um, because Kubrick oh, is actually yeah, like yeah. a, a, a chess master, and um, of course apparently is. this is on purpose, but they're Hal is playing chess with uh, with Frank and says, sorry, but you've made a mistake, Frank. Um, looks like I'm going to win in these three moves. And Frank says, oh, you're right. So I guess I resign. Um, but apparently there is, Hal is, has made a mistake in the chess game also. So that's actually the first indication that something's wrong. But or because I, or... none of us are... are... <laughs> can, can, I, can, I, can I give you a counterpoint maybe here? Sure. So it could be a, a sign that he's made a mistake, how that is, or it could be him see if he can get away with it intentionally. Oh, like a test. Yeah. And it's it's, just, it's actually uh, the human who just sort of like, yeah, yeah. Maybe the point of it being that the human's too trusting of the technology and doesn't mm-hmm. question it enough and doesn't try and think about it. Uh, but anyway, Hal makes a mistake and whatever makes causes him to make a mistake uh, about this you know the 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 dish you know the 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 satellite really yeah so like battery is about to fail it looks like a car battery but i don't know what it is exactly but but, But but some some crucial piece of equipment for communication is going to it will inevitably fail in like 72 hours or something so so they go out and get it and they do some testing on it it's like oh no this is incorrect it's fine like it's going to be fine and hal you know feels bad and I say it feels bad in, in the sense that he says he he says it's based on human error yeah but in the sense that he tries to be apologetic and says you know do you trust my my ability to continue operating the ship blah 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 and this is what prompts the two characters to pretend that they're okay with it and be all friendly mm-hmm. but then Dave comes up with a reason to let's go check out pod number two we have to go we have to go look and put the pod uh, mm-hmm. And it's basically so they can talk without uh, Hal hearing them. And they do some testing. They sort of yell, Hal, you know, spin the pod a couple of times. And he doesn't do it. Um, and of course, this is actually where the intermission kicks in. It's the cliffhanger of them talking yeah. about turning off Hal. And well, Hal can't I hear... Love... Well, I'll just ahead. explain what this is first. Uh, Hal can't hear them. But then the end of the, the scene, which is what cuts to the intermission, is a very stark cliffhanger, actually, is the po- point of view of Hal watching their lips move. To give us the impression that, oh, he's reading their lips. He is understanding yeah. what they're saying. And it's totally silent. <laughs> yeah. I oh, love yeah. I love the shot inside the pod also, where it's just the two the two actors talking to each other. And then in the middle, you could just see the, the watchful eye of Hal yeah. in the background. Like and, and at first it's not as sinister, but then once you get this shot of of from Hal's perspective, you're like, Oh, this is gonna go badly. And all the dialogue in it is is very like nothing is nothing is wasted in the dialogue between the two people they're talking about like we don't know what how 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 will react to the news of um, yeah because one of the lines is um you know like we've never had to turn one off before it says well yeah but we've never had one made a mistake before 
Yeah, but yeah. therefore we don't know how he's going to react if we try and turn them off. Like, he might care. But we'd have to do this in secret, like without Hal knowing, because he might get, he might not want to be turned off. Especially if he has, you know, been programmed to make sure that this mission is successful and he doesn't think it could be successful without him. Also, there is a bit of arrogance that comes through in his personality because he does seem to have one that he might he might get defensive. Part of me also, because this is the other thing, is that because quite quickly after all this, he kills the all the sleeping crew that aren't awake yet. He kills them all, um, mm -hmm. and we kind of obviously the natural instinct is to read that as oh he's went proper man now and he's killing all the humans because the humans all just ruin things and he's the the what correct one and maybe that feeds into the idea that he wants to get to the monolith for himself and you know see what it is. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe he's interpreted the his directive as to just get to the monolith not but, uh, to well, get humans to the monolith that, that's, that's what i was going to suggest is that I, I was trying to think can you argue everything he does is that he's never actually faltered he's never actually went mad he's just he's following everything to the letter and it's mm -hmm. all humans faults of how they've programmed them that you know there's nothing in there about not killing the crew for example yeah honestly that's <laughs> all that's always how i've interpreted it like it's it's always just been like he's been programmed with this one thing and that he needs to carry that out and humans are just going to get in the way of that they can compromise things especially if they're planning on turning him off and i like the idea that they have to replace the battery again the faulty bat the the alleged faulty battery and just wait for it to fail so in order to prove to Hal that he's malfunctioned because it won't fail and when that doesn't happen he can't he won't have any explanation for it yeah i i've i i haven't quite read it that way typically because of the way he does eventually you know quote unquote die um i i've always read Hal as being uh, basically becoming very self uh preservation he, he seems to fear for you know fear his death and doesn't want to be turned off so it's always became more personal to me as it's mm -hmm. went on and the way that it feels more like a, it does a life... come off like a madman like yeah. at, at the end especially because when he's, he's when his brain is getting removed he's reverting back to like simpler programs he, well, he's, like... he, sing, he sings the song from when he was created and he also his speech starts slowing down as dave is pulling out the yeah the memory sticks and he says <laughs> things like he doesn't want to die basically yeah uh, so I've always taken it that I'm he did afraid. it. So I, I do like thinking about it in a way that you know maybe he never actually technically goes mad. He is just kind of following things to a T. But I, I I have to admit when I watch it, I do kind of go down the path of no, he has become self aware enough that he fears death, and he's doing this out of selfishness rather than you know programming. Actually, yeah, I mean, even on, when he's working when he's supposed to, he sounds like he's got this big ego. Before we move on, I just wanted before I forget to mention this when they go out of the pod to talk so they can't hear him i love the sudden like the room noise all disappears when they shut the pod door it just sort of it, it cuts inside mm -hmm. the sound just goes away and it's just their voices and it's one of those things yeah. where i don't think you realize how much room noise is in certain locations until you cut to without it <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it just it, and that's just... all noise that ambient noise has all been added into the film so yeah it's it's great it's a great detail i also love the detail that you see the I mean, explosive bolts caution explosive bolts on the hatch yeah, technically all ambient noise in every film is always added into the film. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Just that was that was the point I was making. Right. <laughs> um, often to cover up things, perhaps that they can't get rid of in the sound mix. Yeah, apparently the 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 actual like 
set that they built for the the hamster wheel is like they have all those um those screens they're all like projections and all those projections are like incredibly loud so like on the outside of it is just a ton of noise but they did have a lot of challenge keeping out of the film which does mean not only do you have to ADR all the dialogue, it means every single sound you do get to hear in the film has to be added in on its own separately from the set recording. Uh, mm-hmm. Although one of the things you do from locations you can use the audio from, now um, admittedly, for movies this doesn't really apply as much, especially big budget ones, because big budget ones will just foley everything, will just, they'll just create everything. Um, for lower budget stuff, one of the things that you do is that when you record a scene in a, say, maybe an apartment, it might be in a park, it might be wherever, uh, is you record everyone calls it something different uh, uh we were just we just called called it recording white noise you just you'd record just nothing for like a minute and it would give the sound mixer like some just blank noise that matches the blank noise that's underneath all the dialogue and the other shots so that you could use that to patch in any gaps that you'd end up having uh in mm-hmm. the sound mix uh that's a very sort of low rent way of doing it uh big budget movies will just create everything from scratch and just have everything perfect but Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the that's the lo-fi way of doing it. I'm pretty sure, but I'm pretty sure here they couldn't do anything like that though because there's so much noise. Uh, see, see a- any scene in a movie where they had to like fire a fan at the actor for the wind, the, the hair to blow. Like, yeah, everything's in the yard. Yeah, that's all. It's all very loud. You can't use the audio from that. Uh, yeah. So, uh, anyway, anyway. Uh, so, but that's what the intermission is. It's this the oh Hal's up going to be up to something. He knows they're after him. So how's he going to react? It's funny when the intermission comes in because every time I'm like, there isn't that much left in the movie. Like, why is the intermission now? <laughs> so there's an hour left. There's a there's a full yeah. hour left. But that hour goes by so fast. Oh, it does. Yeah, uh, because because when he kill because Hal kills the the second guy, the one that's not Dave, <laughs> right? Frank. Yeah. Frank. Right. He's in the yellow suit, and I love that you don't see it. It it cuts. It, it does this sort of snap close up to Hal's eye. It, it, it does it like <laughs> twice. It sort of does like a sort of quick snap in, and then it zaps in a bit more. So it's just mm-hmm. like a do-do. And it goes into his eye close up. And then you just see you know, the yellow spacesuit floating by the window. Yeah, with like, his, his air tube's been cut. Yeah. And of course Dave's like, oh, I need to get out in a pod and go and try and save him. And that becomes a sequence. He's, he's literally in a pod and he's he's got the arms out and he's trying to grab him. And it's this very <laughs> slow, methodical, you know, and it, all this looks great. Yeah. I also love, like, every time they're in the, the spacesuit, we don't get any music. We don't get any sounds. We just get breathing. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing you hear. And like when the breathing does change because of something happening, like it does cause you to like lead Which, in and get a little bit more white knuckled. Like, yeah, what's and it is relatively accurate, uh, you know, for, for at least from my own understanding. There is one or two little things that I've learned, set, you know, from modern stuff that is a little inaccurate in this. Uh, the one the one that stuck out to me, and this is because I've been watching The Expanse, and The Expanse is kind of notorious for being very accurate with its space stuff. Sure. Is, uh, so. Dave tries to save him. Obviously, it doesn't work. But he's coming back to the ship, and Hal won't open the pod doors. He's like, "No, I'm not. I can't. I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave. That's where the, the famous line comes from. I'm afraid I can't <laughs> do that, Dave." Uh, so, and Dave's not got his helmet, so he has to like go into the emergency airlock and essentially just blast his way in uh, from the pod. So he's just—I mean—he's closed the gap. He's—he's he's put it right up to the side of the ship, but he's effectively having to make a, a small trip through space, right? As tiny as it may be. Well, there's yeah. no atmosphere until he until he shuts the, the airlock door, and you can see him like sort of like hold his breath. And he's like, oh, he's, he's, his cheeks are all puffed out, 
Um, apparently that's the worst thing to do. No, uh, yeah, space. it's like uh, having yeah. an emergency ascension into like from underwater. Yeah. It'll your lungs will expand. You want everything out. Honestly, this movie's a lot more like in the ballpark accurate from from its for its time period than you'd expect. Right. So I, yeah, I, mean, I heard that they know. did have some like NASA scientists that they worked with quite a bit on the film. And one of the things that they talked about like could somebody survive in space in theory for a few seconds. And they said, keep it under 15 seconds and I think people will buy it. <laughs> uh, no, apparently you can, because one of the things I learned, because there was a scene in Expanse, and I won't spoil anything because it's a wonderful show that everyone should go watch, but there was a scene where someone was exposed in, in space for... It was in slow motion, so it was hard to tell like how long it was, but you know, someone was just sort of in space for probably at least 10 seconds. And there was a lot of discussion of like, yeah, but wouldn't they just like freeze to death like immediately and, and stuff like that? And I learned a lot of little bits of information that was kind of cool. Uh, one is that, yes, you would freeze, but you don't freeze instantly like some movies show it. Uh, and the reason for that is because there's nowhere for the heat to go, really. So it takes a while for your body to actually cool down, despite the fact mm -hmm. that space is freezing. Um, uh, also, yeah, holding your breath is actually the worst thing you can do. You don't want to hold your breath. You want to just kind of be calm. You want, you want, to be you, know, you want your blood to be oxygenated. Blah, blah, blah. It was just, it was just little things I was learning because... It was one of those things where I just trust the show usually, but this felt a little bit weird because I'm like, oh, this feels a bit fantastical. But it's it's actually the other movies and TV that are to present this has been very accurate. Have been getting it wrong, so I was like, oh, okay, I have to I have to train myself a little bit to know this. Cool. But anyway, uh, I mean, yeah, it's important to know that this movie came out before we even went to the moon. Well, I think <laughs> it's a year before the uh, the moon landing and. Let's be honest, that's why there's so much uh, conspiracy theories about Kubrick yeah. directing the moon landing, because, I mean, the scene on the moon with the monolith looks quite good. <laughs> I mean, it does. It doesn't look like the lunar landing that we get no. from, you know, Armstrong. <laughs> no, from Armstrong. Are you, are you saying that Neil Armstrong directed the moon landing? <laughs> <laughs> well, he and Buzz, yeah. Yeah. Who, who, who put the camera They, they definitely put, yeah, we're filming up there. Who put the camera down? I'll, I'll, they're the director, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know which one you're looking at. Maybe maybe it's Neil, who's got the flag. Probably Buzz. Buzz is like, hey, you got to step on the moon first. Let me plant the flag. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, that said, Neil did get to say one of the most iconic sentences in the history of humankind. So, <laughs> you know. Um, you, can't, you can't hear the word mankind without thinking of the moon landing though uh i saw neil i bet he liked this movie ah, pro, pro. I'm, I'm sure i'm sure I'll, i mean they were literally training for the moon when this came out i'm sure they all went to see it yeah oh there's a movie about people going to space i wish you all go watch that they probably had a good chuckle all, all the little things that they know is inaccurate because they've been training for like right you know every day for months and months uh <laughs> well anyway poor frank is gone yes poor frank is gone um so yeah we get we get the sequence of uh dave again walking any space suit no and this is a detail that i'd forgotten but, but he's just grabbed the nearest helmet so he's got the red suit yeah. on but his helmet's green uh right because he's left his his helmet on there and i also like the idea that he's got he's wearing the suit inside of the ship because presumably uh um, has gotten rid support. of the oxygen yeah. <laughs> at this point like the movie doesn't like explain everything to you, but there's so many so much detail there that you that's, can just get from from watching it without listening. That's one of those things that I think the reason why I instantly assumed that's why he was wearing the suit inside 
is because of other sci-fi from the last, you know, 50 years that have, you know, really trained me to know these things. Mm-hmm. But if I had seen this in 1960, I probably would have understood that immediately. Yeah. So. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's neat. But yeah, because then pulls out the, the memory stick things. But when he's finished pulling them out, the, the video auto plays the the message about why this what this mission is, where they're going. The the first ever life that's not of Earth has been uncovered, or the first sign of life, I should say, has been uncovered. Um, and now then it's we, Dave by himself. Yeah, and then we basically cut to the you know the beyond the Jupiter section of the film, and we get a very trippy, uh, light show. <laughs> and which leads to another planet like i said but uh like it, it's not because very early on you get the vertical sort of like down the middle with the, the walls of light coming past you um and that's really trippy but for some reason when it goes horizontal it feels even more trippy <laughs> like afterwards yeah. <laughs> uh but there's a lot going on I, it wouldn't surprise me i don't think there is but it wouldn't surprise me if someone said that technically there's something in here that counts as cgi obviously not in the way that we think about it but if, if it's like technically comes from a computer so therefore oh. yeah i don't know i don't think so though. i think it's just some sort of photography like trick it, i think it is yeah involving um, like plates and stuff um but uh, yeah it's it's a very you know trippy sequence it's other than how it's probably the thing the movie is most remembered for and i think mm-hmm. this is the part of the film that makes or break it for people like i don't like that it's not telling me what's going on uh and i don't like this movie or <laughs> You say that. I've got a feeling a lot of people tap out with how long it takes the spaceship stuff to happen near the start. Yeah, it is a slow film. Yeah. So if you're not into that, then yeah. I, I like a lot of uh, the people who but don't I like slow films. I think people who even like movies that don't like this film, I think it's because of the end. I think people, I think sure. there are people who, sure. who like I, I'm film just lovers say, who don't I, like this movie. I'm just saying a lot of people who don't like slow movies have already tapped out long before we get to Beyond Jupiter. <laughs> right. I'm not talking about Transformers fans. <laughs> so, I'm talking about yeah. the people like the the movie critics and stuff who who there are people who don't like the film, and I think it's because of the ending. Madness. I agree. Madness. It, the the ending is just like I love how ballsy it is. I love it. You know, like I said, I was describing it earlier, but it literally goes monolith. Dave pointing, monolith. Mm-hmm. Star Child, what? <laughs> monolith, <laughs> and then then it cuts, you know, it tracks into the monolith, uh, into the black, and then it, we're back at Earth. The music's bombastically yeah, going. Dave has returned home, and this giant Star Child is coming towards Earth. And whether or not you take this more literal, where humanity is going to change because on a physical level, because change has come, uh, you know, Dave has come back, essentially embodying this mass, like species change or mm-hmm. it's more of a because i i think you know the, the, the more straight way to read this is that it's more it's more saying that humans are ready for intergalactic society and that the aliens are essentially sending a message back to say hey we're here you're now part of the intergalactic world and we'll be in touch <laughs> kind of thing um well yeah but i think i obviously with the star child thing there is a sense of rebirth and there is yes he's come back with something special in order to yes. to make us be able to get to that next stage which is, which is why that's where you come back to i think the aliens actually created us and it's like sort of like given us the next stage of of the, the evolution uh 
Right. Be, beyond. Yeah, they're just waiting for us to become interesting by the time we got to the moon. And then I'm like, all right, here we go. Because I, I think if you read it we need as... a little push. If you read it as that we were not created by aliens and they just sent a monolith to like change us and to see what happened to us and sort of for us to prove. I think if you start with that idea that we weren't created and they just interfered, then it makes sense that the ending is, oh, you're ready to be part of the intergalactic community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, 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 if you've, so you're going with that line of thinking. I think those two things go together neatly. Uh, if, if you're going with the idea they created us and that the ending is unlocking the next stage of human evolution uh then you know rebirth and you know dave is reborn as this giant ass baby which is a very cool visual actually again in a time before cg in a time where this was an optical trick with a doll or maybe an actual i don't know if it's a baby no it's too silly to be an actual baby but (laughs) yeah it looks a little odd so i don't think i think it yeah it's a doll for sure plus its eyes move a little bit yeah it's a it's a hell of a visual, but it's such a what the f visual that I can't imagine what seeing this in 1968 before the internet was alive and people could like talk about their ideas and there was like analysis everywhere and people like us yeah. on YouTube talking about it. Like, what did you do in 1968 when you walked out of the theater and went? You probably got the book. Yeah, what? The <laughs> went, Wait, this isn't quite right. What the but... hell was that? What did I just watch? What's going on? <laughs> That's funny because I think there's a in the trivia there is a a quote from. Uh, apparently Rock Hudson saw the movie and came out and screamed, what the hell did I just watch? <laughs> <laughs> and I get that reaction, because it's definitely, like, I think, I think at least film fans are more used to the weirder stuff now. We're used to, you know, David Lynch is a thing. Uh, he's basically created a, a genre that we refer to as Lynchian. Uh, we're used to weird art house movies that are ambiguous and what leave us guessing. But I think in 1968, if you go to see a Stanley Kubrick movie, who's done, you know, uh, not Full Metal Jacket yet, but, uh, like... Paths of Glory. Paths of Glory, Spartacus. Uh, Clockwork Orange was obviously more cerebral, but ne- wasn't necessarily hard to follow. I think you you, you, know, you got to see one of these big new directors in movies, yeah. and you've got this, and you leave the theatre going, what? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> What's going on? I don't think I understand it. Does anyone else understand it? <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, I think famously he did not explain anything when he was asked questions about the ending of the film. He said, I don't, mm-hmm. he said on the, on the, on the, uh, what is it? The Mona Lisa, there's no explanation from Da Vinci on how to interpret the painting. Like it's, that, it's there. <laughs> that, that's a little bit egotistical to, to throw that I don't comparison know, like, out. <laughs> like maybe, but at the same time, like he is probably going to go down as like, if not the greatest director of all time, like one of the masters. Oh no, no, he absolutely is, and I, yeah. I mean, I don't really care about, uh, you know, paintings that much. So I mean, it's fine. But as a little bit, you get to sort of say about yourself. You're like, well, Da Vinci never. <laughs> like, it's it's kind of funny to me. <laughs> I, I don't. It know is who, a bit presumptuous, sure. I, I don't know who the Da Vinci of uh, podcasts is for me to compare us to, but. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Don't throw out any names. Conan be, O'Brien. It'll be, it'll be criticized <laughs> about who it is. Conan O'Brien. Yeah. Sure. It's got a great <laughs> podcast. Sure. <laughs> we'll go with it. We'll go with it. Um. But yeah, that's that's basically the the, the movie. I mean, I. It's special. It, it it feels like you're watching. I mean, you said it was like a musical performance. And I can kind of see that comparison. It's, it's, it's got kind of a symphony kind of feel to it in a weird way. Um, but with film still being a, and visuals still being the essential part without the visuals it's nothing 
Um, and it needs the visuals because there's so little dialogue <laughs> that you need visuals to, to tell the story. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's an odyssey, right? It's a journey. Yes, yes. There's uh, you know, there's 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 Homer's Odyssey and there's Spacey's Odyssey. And that's Spacey's well, I have Odyssey. heard that the Homer's Odyssey was very much like what they were working off of when they created the script. I mean, obviously, uh, Arthur C. Clarke had his short stories that he had already written. Like Kubrick said, I want to make a sci-fi movie with you, and I really like that short story you made, The Sentinel, which is basically the story of mankind finding the monolith on the moon and then it's sending out a signal and then the story's over and so they just expanded from that uh -huh. um but also like the idea of um i guess uh odysseus was like a great bowman and dave's last name is bowman and then the cyclops is represented by Hal with the single watchful eye as <laughs> like the monster of the film so there are some parallels and then of course the journey into space into the unknown and then um, trying to meet your gods or possibly your creators and then the journey ending returning to your home earth so i mean there are some parallels there for sure and it is not a secret that there is um that that was uh, one of the biggest influences of the movie that they even used it in the title yes as someone who doesn't actually know what the Homer's Odyssey story is, I just took a lot of for granted there that you were saying things that were also in that. But yes, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a while. But <laughs> <laughs> Some yes. of the details are missing. Well, it, well, it came out when you were uh, in high school, I think, right? Uh -huh. Sure. Oh, come on. I'm talking about I know, something I know, I know. You're threatened by my intelligence, so you have to make an age joke. I'm not threatened. What? <laughs> How dare you? Just kidding. We're friends. <laughs> I feel like I've been humiliated, quite frankly. I'm supposed to wrap up this podcast, and I don't really know how. We're supposed to rate the movie. Rate, rate 2001. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's obviously a 10, because that's what our scale goes to, but I do think this, this scale this movie goes beyond the scale. <laughs> I think this film is unrateable. You cannot assign value to it. It is the film that which all films will be compared to. Oh, that's a fair statement. And uh, that's based on something you yourself said earlier, or that's a conversation we had earlier, which is that this does not follow the conventions of film, so therefore it's unfair to compare regular films to <laughs> Well, right, it's unfair to give this film a rating no that's not true i mean you give it a 10, it's a 10. <laughs> uh i i've said that before i've said that this movie is unrateable i'll give it the 10 because that's the greatest one that we can give it on our scale that we have created but it is beyond 10. all right well i mean i yes yeah, 10. i mean which you have from me i don't know <laughs> And it's not like this is the first time I've rated it either. I've rated it a 10 before. <laughs> this viewing did not lower it in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it's a special film, and... Uh... Yeah, here we are, so... <laughs> and if you've made it this far into the review, you can 
Uh, oh, what word would it, what should you put? Hmm. Daisy? Why Daisy? Daisy, Daisy. Oh, the song. Okay. Give me your answer, dude. Okay, put the word Daisy if you read it this far. Uh, Tara's going to pose for the thumbnail, so uh, here we go. Yep, three, two, one. Pose. That's all you got. You've been, you've had such <laughs> good poses for the last like three or four movies, and that's what you came up with for this one. Your favorite movie I don't of know all time. I'll have to get some really... Let me adjust the lighting and make sure it's perfect. And <laughs> I'll get back to you in three hours. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, so that's cool. Now, let's, let's just go over to uh, our new favorite section which of the show, which is the IMDb user reviews. And I'm going to filter by one star. Oh, and, and this should be what, interesting. And see what they say. Uh, from August tw 2006, don't believe... pretentious comes up. Don't believe the hype. Uh <laughs> From 2005, overrated tripe. That's from the Mantis. <laughs> from 2006, when art attacks. From 2009, simply titled Drivel. Oh, that's one thinks he's way. From 2005, 2001, a cure for insomnia. That would be what I titled my review of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, for the record. But, uh... He's <laughs> at least trying to be away. Huh? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Masterpiece of Crap is another title on here. Oh, there's a second review called A Cure for Insomnia. Oh, it's not even original. Oh. Damn, that's a shame. That's a real shame. Uh, <laughs> the worst movie of the century. Amazingly boring. Typical bloated Kubrick nonsense about absolutely nothing. Whoa. <laughs> That's a bold statement. Have they not watched, like, any of his other movies? They all have, like, a thing that they're saying. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a, a ton of these. How, how many is there? If I go back up to the top, see how many. There's 195 one-star reviews for 2001 wow. on IMDb. Yeah. yeah. Uh, alternatively, there is 985 10 star reviews on IMDb. Uh, that's good. I appreciate so, that. Yeah, that's good. Uh, yes. So, there you go. That is uh, that is basically the show. Um, I will remind you uh, to go to patreon.com slash mailplustv to support us and keep the content coming. But you can also support us, of course, by hitting the like button and subscribing and commenting. These things are very important on YouTube for spreading the, the show around and hitting more of an audience. Uh, you can also, of course, get us on Twitter at mailed underscore fuzz for channel updates. Uh, Tara, would you like to promote anything else that's coming up or that we do? Um, sure. If you enjoy 60s science fiction, you should watch the Twilight Zone along with us. We've been working our way through the classic series and we're right now in season three. And uh, it's been a blast. So come check that out. Uh, but that's pretty much us. I should tell you what's coming next time, though, shouldn't I? Uh, yeah, we have a special one. It is a special one. If it is what I think it is, but I'm just double-checking because I'm not 100%. <laughs> uh, 
but I believe we're actually doing something a little bit different next uh, episode. For episode 101, for our movie Test Subject 101, it's actually a twofer. Uh, we'll be going to be doing a dual review of two films together. Um, it'll be obvious why, because we are doing the original King Kong and the original Godzilla in the same episode. <laughs> so We're crazy. So expect shenanigans, expect... I don't know. I'm not even sure how this is going to work. Like, do we do two separate reviews and then talk about both of them at the end? Or do we do, like, both of the first acts together and then the second acts and then the spoilers start all together? My, my brain's broke. How dare <laughs> you give them an indication that we don't know what we're doing? How dare you? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Sorry, guys, if this is your first time figuring that out. I, I know exactly what I'm doing at all times. Thank you very much. I will not have anything else suggested otherwise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look, you fake it until you make it, all right? That's, that's all that's I hear anyway. Yeah. Uh, so that's what's coming next time, so look forward to that next week. So even episode is a biggie. Uh, and then mm-hmm. uh, a lot of Godzilla and Kong stuff uh, over the next month uh, before... Uh, the new film comes out in March, which obviously we're going to be doing, so that's the, right. that's the plan. which was a surprise drop for us, so we're trying to get this stuff all in. Well, it, it was meant to be May, and they pushed it forward to, to March, the bastards, right. so so now we have... Expect a lot of monsters. One, two, three. We've got four different episodes we have to do before that movie that are all related to it uh, mm-hmm. before it comes out, so there's obviously a couple of vote winners interspersed and one or two other things, but expect a lot of kaiju <laughs> over the next month yeah. and a half. Uh, so there you go that has been episode 100 of the Atomic Cinema Experiment and that has been a discussion of 2001 A Space Odyssey uh, hopefully it lived up to the hype if there was indeed such a thing <laughs> I hope there was uh, but that is us so thank you once again for watching and listening we always appreciate it keep watching science fiction and computer okay just before I do my catchphrase you better say the right thing, because there's a, a, an obvious thing you have to say to me when I say this, oh, and I'm, I'm going to be say and I'm going to be disappointed if it doesn't click in your brain when I say it. Computer, add salsa. Oh, there's so much pressure. Come on, come on it's the most famous line for the movie. What? Computer, add salsa. I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave. It's so oh. obvious. It's so easy. What What the hell, women? <laughs> I'm sorry, Peter. I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs>